Hi there, Glucal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from, I'll let my guests tell us where we are, but an area in my city of this Accra today, which is exciting. And I'm going to just get to his introduction. He is a strategic advisor with 16 years of professional experience helping startups monetize their digital assets and Fortune 500 brands reach their target customers through digital media advertising. Earlier in his career, he was responsible for using email marketing and affiliate advertising to drive product purchases and lead generation for direct-to-consumer companies. In 2012, he began his investment career by personally investing in Peeps Out, a minority-run livestream mobile app that allowed users to see the crowd size at bars and restaurants in real time. Isn't that such a clever thing? At its peak, there were 90 restaurants and bars in two cities, so that's quite a few in two cities on service, and they had raised over $350,000 in funding. His current business is a Freetown Sierra Leone-based firm focused on improving the lives of underrepresented and underserved populations and operates in four sectors, African startup advisory, African film production, e-commerce, and real estate. Johannes, Joe, Mohotagwa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, I'm excited to be here. Okay, so let's get right to it. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Great question. So born in Harlem Hospital, in New York City. Did go back and forth between Pennsylvania and a boarding school and New York. So uh, when people ask me where I'm from, I always say Pennsylvania and New York. Like New York was my home, but I spent more time in Pennsylvania than I did in New York. I uh, did spend most of my adult career in New York. Spent four years in Los Angeles before moving to Accra, Ghana in December of 2020. Okay, so what is your craft? Oh, yes. So I am uh, professionally, I am an advertising professional. So I help advertisers reach their target audiences online. So that's Fortune 500 brands who are looking to figure out how to find new customers to re-engage their current customers. And I do all of that through uh, the work I do called programmatic advertising, which is basically uh, targeting the right user at the right place at the right time. Uh, what I also forgot to mention is that I am a dual citizen between the United States and Sierra Leone. Uh, both my parents are born and raised in Sierra Leone and I am building uh, houses in Sierra Leone and I have property there. So I do go back and forth between Accra, Ghana and Freetown, Sierra Leone. So do you find that commute easy? The commute is easy. The price for the commute is not so easy. Um, Sierra Leone, one of the challenges that we have in that country is taxing flights. So. The same flight from Ghana to like, let's say Tanzania might be $600, but that flight for Sierra Leone to Tanzania is $1,300. And the reason for that is the taxes. Yeah. So I've flown between multiple countries in West Africa and generally the price is between three and $400, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for one way. And even sometimes 
round trip, depending on how far in advance you do it. But with Sierra Leone, you have to add like another $200 in taxes, things like that. So it's very expensive to fly back and forth, considering it's a two and a half hour flight from Accra to Freetown. So we're to Lungay specifically. So that's the only challenge, but it, it's so much easier though for me to travel from Ghana to Sierra Leone than it was when I was in the States traveling from JFK to Sierra Leone. Yeah. So I must prefer it here. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, of course. I'm, I'm glad you shared that insight on the pricing because, you know, before Lagos used to be an easy jaunt. It's an hour flight. It's a couple hundred bucks. The last time I went to Lagos, which was last November, I paid $600. Wow. Yes. I paid $600 to go to Senegal, which is a four-hour right. four flight. So you can imagine that this the, that tax issue is yes. like a real thing. Sure. Okay, so... You're in between your Sierra Leonean American. Yes. Who is in Ghana. Yes. Why the where? How did you come to be living, working, and playing here in Accra? It's a great question. So I've been going back and forth to Sierra Leone from 2017 through 2019. So I'd gone six times in those two years. Mm -hmm. And in that process, I discovered that I could actually spend more time on the continent of Africa. Not necessarily thought that I could move, but I knew that I, I had an affinity for being here and I, I always would come back with a renewed sense of purpose every time I would go to Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. In 2019, the year of return, I, like many others, apparently a million others, came to Ghana and I fell in love with the idea of where Sierra Leone could be, right? I know if you talk to Ghanaians, they can always complain about the progress that it's not, it's not fast enough. People would like to see Ghana be further along than it is. But having been to Sierra Leone multiple times, I can tell you Ghana is further ahead, right? I love my country of Sierra Leone, but in terms of what I do for a living and where I want to go in my career, Ghana was just somewhere that had more opportunity. For example, I had a full-time job as a head of advertising at Jumia within two months of being in Ghana where there isn't an operation for Jumia in Sierra Leone, like a logistics business of that size. So the opportunities were more here. And I knew that I can learn from what I'm doing in Sierra Leone. I mean, sorry, doing in Ghana and apply that to Sierra Leone. And that's been the goal. So I did spend more time in Sierra Leone in 2022 than I did in Ghana. I actually spent four months in Ghana in 2022 and five months in Sierra Leone okay. in 2022. However, more of the opportunities that I've had in terms of career and the next phase of my career have been here in Ghana. Got it. Got it. So let me put a piece together because you mentioned your building houses yes. here, Leona, and real estate is one of your, your areas of expert professional application. Sure. And so that's also on my background. How have you found the real estate business, the industry working in that space in Sierra Leone? You know, it's, uh, I can only compare it to my experience in the U.S., Yes. right? And, you know, on the continent, I think one of the things that people need to realize is this is not a credit-based system, right? It's a cash business. Exactly. Everything's cash. And so uh, that has been a struggle because I co-own property in Seattle, Washington, um, and I've gone through the process of, of trying to buy a house in Brooklyn, never came to fruition, but you can get a loan from a bank, yes. right? It covers all the costs ahead of time, whether you need to build it in real time or just purchase it, but that can all be done and it's just done. This process of building a house in Sierra Leone has been an arduous process, fraught with many challenges along the way, which I like this opportunities, you can call them opportunities. So uh, how do I find it? I can say that, um, you know, if you don't have, for me, $2,000 per month, this, the project slows down tremendously. Yeah. 
inflation is also an issue, right? So the price for cement, when I first started building a year and a half ago, is very different than the price for cement now. Uh, so that has been a challenge. Uh, I would also say that my contractor is gonna go where the money is. If I'm not giving him that same amount of money every month, I go lower on his priority list. Uh, I've also had to fire two contractors prior to working with this contractor. And so there were many challenges along the way, but I would say that I learned a lot from that experience uh, and it, it made me more resilient. And I'm actually happy that it happened that the way it did, because it makes me better qualified to help others who are deciding to make the move and, and want to build. But it's also rewarding because you go through that much of a struggle to make it happen, to actually see a product coming to fruition, Yeah. right? You can't appreciate something if you haven't had to struggle to get to make it happen. Okay. And so I actually see it as a, as a positive thing because had I not, had I just walked into the situation, the first contractor that I got and it was built, I may not appreciate it as much as I do now. Like I, when I go there, I smile and I can see there's a building there, you know? Uh, so I would definitely say that's, that's the way I, I, I've seen it. Um, but it, it definitely had its challenges, but it's been, it's been a, a great learning experience for sure. So doing projects in Africa, you mentioned, yes, it's cash, but tell us a little bit more about, was it your land? Did you acquire the land? Like where, how did you, how have you built the project? Like really getting into the weeds of it? It's a great question. So uh, in Sierra Leone, it's always best to have someone who has local context to help you. So luckily, both my parents are born in Sierra Leone and raised in Sierra Leone. And my mother's side of the family actually had property that they were managing, kind of paying a little bit to kind of keep up. <laughs> we have a concept called board houses or in Sierra Leone, they call them bodos. And these are wooden houses that were built by the British in the 17 and 1800s. And so we had one that was in the family. We had a large plot of land, a bunch of land, which shrank over time in the last 150 years. Encroachers? Encroachers, yeah, and family encroachers, right? These are like distant family, like second cousins to my mother, so like third cousins for me, but yeah, they've encroached on the land. So I kind of have a weird shaped plot. Mm -hmm. But they were, the, as a family, there were some in Sierra Leone and some in the States or actually all around the world were kind of all could lay claim to that property. And so they were planning to just sell it because those that were in Sierra Leone really needed the cash. Mm -hmm. And so I, I caught wind of this because I had been already looking at different properties. Mm -hmm. And so my first purchase was that land. Um, I was able to come to them. My mother is the oldest of all the siblings. And so she kind of had first- Thankfully. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah. So she had kind of first right of refusal. And then although I'm not the oldest of her, her children, I was the only one expressing interest in yeah. buying. And so she mentioned it to me, I had the funds, so I could immediately yeah. get everyone what they needed uh, and they sold the land to me. So that was the first piece of property. And then there were a couple of other pieces of property that I bought subsequently. And that's because of family members who had relationships with the chiefs yep. locally. Uh, and so they could help us acquire the land without much issue. Nice. And so now you're here Yep. And you're not always there. Right. So how are you managing the projects? How are you managing the movement, the flow, your architect? Are they based there? Did you bring someone from outside? How did you? It's a great question. So uh, in the very beginning, um, I started working with a contractor who was actually a second cousin of mine. Mm -hmm. That did not go well. He grew up in the States, mm -hmm. but he had moved back to Sierra Leone. And I think he picked up some of the habits of some of our local Sierra Leonean mm -hmm. brothers and sisters. And so it became very challenging to keep in contact with him. Um, and then the second contractor was another cousin's family friend. 
who took on too much at once and started taking this idea of kind of be robbing Peter to pay Paul. I would pay him. He would use that money to buy materials and work on the next person. Wow. So he would take the first payment for himself. And then the second payment goes to the next con property that he's working with. Yeah. Then that payment from them comes back to what I'm doing. Yeah. And that was the kind of thing he was doing, which led to so many delays. Although I knew where he lived and I went to his house and was able to embarrass him in front of his parents, you know, because that was necessary. Yeah. Right. Because our, our family name is super important to us here in Africa. Right. At least West Africa, for what I understand with other countries that I've engaged with and people I met. You know, he finished that next stage in the project that needed that needed to be done. I had to give him a little bit more money because inflation meant that what he was supposed to have done six months prior had a new cost associated with it. And then what I decided to do was deal with someone who's currently doing good work for someone else and who their livelihood is basically based on that work that they're doing for someone else. So this person is doing construction at a multi-unit complex. And so I knew that if I worked with him, and I have a good relationship with his other boss, that there is a potential that he could lose that work. Yeah. And so if he doesn't do a, a great job for me, there's a potential that he could lose other work. Because it, it wasn't the family name that was enough. I thought having the family name and, and not wanting to embarrass the family name was enough. I realized that having leverage yes. is, is super important. So, so knowing that, I know that he's gonna stay on top of the job and actually do the work. Yeah. Now, in terms of making sure that the work is being done properly, I have third parties that have no stake in this, except I'm, I'm giving them a little bit of money sure. to go. And so people who have trained, who are trained in engineering, yeah. uh, who can go and, and look to see, okay, are the blocks being created properly, built properly? Are the walls flush? Um, how, you know, are we ensuring there are no cracks mm -hmm. so that, you know, insects don't find their way in? Mm -hmm. uh, and then I also have a caretaker on the property. So he's watching to make sure cement doesn't get stolen, which actually, well, mastic doesn't get stolen, which actually did happen. He caught it. And that was a whole nother situation. Wow. Yeah. And so I just ensure that I have multiple eyes on it. Yes. And if he's not there, his wife is at home okay. and she watches. Now, they're not aware that these people are watching them. So, but, but it, it's helpful to have them. Yeah. And then separately from that, I also ask them not to send pictures, but to show me video. Because mm -hmm. you can take pictures of anything, mm -hmm. right? And so I've required video. And uh, which has actually been great because I've been using that for my content that I create. And so I've been able to share content. Even if I'm not there locally, I can say, well, this is what the progress on the house looks like. So it actually has uh, two benefits. One, I can share it with my, my mother, who's actually going to be moving into the property so she can see how long it's taking and what the progress looks like. I could do content on it. And then I can also check to see what the quality of the work looks like. Yeah. 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 Good. That sounds great. So comparing the real estate, the cost sure. and um, of getting into that. Ghana or Accra is one of the most expensive cities, I want to say in the world, but definitely in Africa. Sure. It's a well-known. So how would you compare the cost, the construction cost, the building cost there versus what you know about the Ghana market? So I think it's it's not as expensive as, as Ghana because, you know, you're buying the land is, is more expensive here. Of course, your labor is more expensive and some of your products are more expensive. So some things are actually built here in Ghana, so you don't have to pay those import taxes. Sierra Leone has to do a lot of importing. So we do pay some import taxes for different things. And our taxes are a little bit higher on these things as a legend on flashes, right? So, but overall, I think it's expensive for Sierra Leone. Like when you think of the GDP of the country, the average income of the country, less than 10% of the country actually owns any housing of their own because it's just not possible to be able to build your own house. So I would say it's expensive 
comparatively within the country, it is more expensive comparatively if you're thinking about GDP and certain elements of it are more expensive. But I think both of us can agree that Ghana and Sierra Leone are more expensive than we think it should be comparative to the economy that we're living in, right? And what you get for the expense, right? So you're paying all these taxes. Yes. But the question is, what are they paying for? Right. That's fair. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I I would say the quality of work, too, I think is a little bit better in Ghana, too, Mm -hmm. right? So Ghana is very good with aesthetics, Mm -hmm. right? You could see that like some of the really nice restaurants, some of the buildings look really nice. You know, I would say in Sierra Leone, that's, that's something that we're working on. So would you say, because a lot of the aesthetics that you are talking about are foreign investment. Yeah. And so, you know, we know Sierra Leone's recent past. What is foreign investment? You work conceivably foreign investment. So sure. what, what is foreign investment looking like from a diaspora perspective? Yeah, I think that's probably where the largest influx of cash comes from, right, for the country is from outside. I mean, remittance is a big part of like what's flowing in the economy today, right? I know if you if you have West African parents, you know that they're giving money back home um, and these remittance services do really well, too. You know, Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say that it's it's a large I don't know what percentage of the economy it is, but it's a large percentage of it. And there are many people from the previous generation. So I would say Generation X and baby boomers have spent a significant amount of money building in Sierra Leone. Uh, Most of them have been doing it so that they can retire back home in Sierra Leone. But what we're seeing is there's a larger contingent of people who are younger Gen X, millennials who are coming back and moving to the continent and building. And most of us who are from the for-profit sector are working outside jobs, but the nonprofit sector and NGO space is really big in Sierra Leone. And so many of my friends who work there are working as country managers or department heads at these uh, large organizations, who, by the way, are multinational organizations yeah. as well. So they pay for your housing, they pay for right. cars and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, most most of the cash is coming from outside mm-hmm. the country, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good, good point to ask you about Glocal Speak. Sure. So we want to know what you hear. And so I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and how you've come to value it as global speak. Okay, so specifically here in Ghana or Sierra Leone? uh, I asked that, so I want you to choose. Okay, so I would say, I'll say Ghana. I'll do Ghana and I'll say Akwaba. Okay. Right? And I think that that's interesting because that, that helps give context for why I think so many people come here, right? I think the idea of welcome, yeah. right? And why, why does that matter, right? I think that Ghana, as if from leaving the idea of the Gold Coast to becoming Ghana, right? And Kwame Nkrumah, your first president, I think it was very big on Pan-Africanism. And, you know, we talk about the Black Star Line and Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Maya Angelou, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, all, and Nina Simone, right? people coming here and other people moving here. And that idea, I think, has really helped throughout the years to have a large contingent of people coming coming and going, right, from the diaspora, whether that was people who never even traced their roots back because the DNA wasn't available back then, but they just decided they wanted to move here as Black Americans, mm-hmm. or there are people who have done it with their DNA, or people such as yourself, right? But that's been going on since, I think, Gata's inception, right, as, a, as a, what it's currently... Currency, yeah, post-independence. And so I think that that word, I think, is representative of that, right? Because there's always been that welcoming idea. Now, there are varying degrees of that welcome, right? There are different people who say it's, it's different. But I, I do think that that is a very true part of 
of what it's like to be coming here as what well, you might consider yourself as like a foreigner, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be what I would say is a guava. Okay. Do you have one for Sierra Leone? I think for Sierra Leone, yes. Mm-hmm. In Oizio. In Oizio. <laughs> in Oizio. Yeah, uh, and it's something that you hear here as well, right? The pigeon. And yes. for us, Creole is actually a written language. It's, an, it's, an, mm-hmm. it's a written language. So yeah. our pigeon is a written language. It's, a, it's actually the second most, well, it is the most spoken language in Sierra Leone yeah. for the most part, yeah. especially between tribes. And it, I think it depicts how people feel in the country, right? It is not easy, yeah. right? Uh, and so I, I think that that is something that it, I think the Civil War has, you know, long term impact on the country. And although Civil War ended the year I graduated from high school, which is 20, 21 years ago, um, it's still it's still impacting the country and the economy today. And so that's that that phrase that it's not easy. It's a constant phrase. People say it all the time. And it, whether you're a local or you're a diasporan or an expat, whoever you are, you, when you're there, that's what you say. And I think that that, but I also means there's an opportunity to make change. And we're starting to see that change begin to happen with, I think, this new influx of folks who have parents that are from Sierra Leone and they're a little bit younger, have more energy to start building the infrastructure that we would like to see. The infrastructure that would have kept our parents in the country instead yeah. of leaving the country. Right. right. So do you speak any of your, your parents' languages or you mentioned Creole? What, what do you speak? So I speak Creole. My father's side of the family, my father speaks Creole, Mende, and Mendingo. So my, my father's half Mendingo, half Mende. Unfortunately, I do not speak or understand Mende or, Men- or Mendingo. Mm-hmm. I only understand Creole mm-hmm. and I speak Creole. But I speak Creole with American accents, yes. of course. Yeah. So it's clear yeah. that I was born elsewhere. Yeah. But that had been a, an experience that I had to, to pick up more recently. Like I speak Creole the best out of my siblings because I spend the most time in Sierra Leone. My oldest sister, as you described, right? My oldest sister heard and spoke Creole a little bit more fluently because my mother was speaking Creole at that time. Yeah. As she was further assimilating in American society, she started speaking mostly English. And we always spoke English to her, we spoke Creole to us. Mm. Uh, and then eventually she started speaking and writing in English to us. So now that she text messages us, it's all in English. When she talks to me, it's in English. And the interesting thing is I will tell her, I need you to speak Creole, but she has this almost 30 year experience yeah. of speaking English to me, yeah. but she still speaks Creole to my older sister. So my sister, I was on the phone with my sister. My sister runs into her at Walmart. My mom is speaking Creole to her. And then my mom says she's speaking to me. And my mom yells out to me in English. Wow. The way the mind works, right? And so, so yeah, unfortunately, Creole is the only language I speak. I have asked a few people to try to teach me Mende. It's so difficult because it's not rooted in any of the languages that I'm used to speaking, right? Like I was able to pick up Spanish in school pretty quickly because yeah, there's a Latin background, right? And there's, um, there are many language letters and, and words that overlap. Yeah. When it comes to Mende, it's a really different language and trying to understand it has been very difficult. And that was what the elders used to use to have conversations they didn't want us to hear. Right. And so I, you know, unfortunately they didn't teach us yeah. those languages. Yeah. So yeah, so Creole is the only language I speak fluently. Yeah. Well, I speak like a three to five year old. You know, like I have, I have limited use of the language, but I can survive. I mean, I, I mean, I, if, if somebody doesn't speak English or who has a hard time understanding English, I can speak Creole to them. But it sounds like pigeon. Would you say they're comfortable? Because pigeon, it has so many like 
yeah. words that are like, oh, that blows my mind. So would you say they're they're comparable? They're comparable. And I would say it's more comparable to Nigerian pidgin. Yeah. Because Ghanaian pidgin, I think, has evolved over time because Ghanaians are very big on speaking English, yes, right? Exactly. I, a lot of women here don't even speak pidgin because it's almost oh, like yeah. Ebonics in the States, right? It's seen as like uh, poor people talk, right? right? Whereas in Sierra Leone, it's a, it's a part of the language, yes. right? Everyone speaks it. It's actually seen as strange if you don't speak it. Right. Same thing in Nigeria. Right. And there's there were a couple things that happened in history in Sierra Leone that led to our pidgin sounding a lot like, or Creole sounding like pidgin. Mm -hmm. One, the first university in West Africa was in Sierra Leone, mm -hmm. right? So you had a lot of Nigerians coming to university and many stayed there. Mm -hmm. And then you have the idea of the end of the slave trade where people, because Sierra Leone was one of the furthest points west where ships were leaving from. Mm -hmm. And so those Nigerians actually ended up staying. And so what is now the Creole tribe is freed slaves from Nova Scotia, Canada, Nigerians that were in country, mm -hmm. and a few other West Indians that were in the country. Yeah. And so there are some similarities. You'll hear some words that sound similar to things that you hear in the West Indies. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot of Nigerian sounding pidgin. Mm -hmm. And then of course, Nigerian culture is very big around the West Africa, right? People watch Nigerian films, people listen to Nigerian music. Right. So the Creole in Sierra Leone starts to pick up words from Nigerian pidgin. So that is why it, it seems very similar. Like I might to Nigerian friends, when I speak Creole to them, they understand me. When they speak pidgin to me, I understand them. Okay, okay, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, that's cool. You know, I didn't know the first university, Africa or West Africa? West Africa, because technically Mount Samusa okay. built yeah. the, the university um, in, was it? Timbuktu, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, that's what I thought, okay. Yeah. So what is the name of the university? It is called Frabe College. Frabe? Frabe. For, uh, it's spelled F-O-U-R-A-H, Bay College. But in Sierra Leone, we pronounce things yes. differently than how it's not phonetic. Yes. So they say Frabe College or FBC. But that, yeah, that was... Oh, okay. I've heard of that. FBC. FBC, okay. yeah. Yeah, so it's a big deal. So like a lot of Ghanaians, a lot of Nigerians went to school there. This is still during the colonial period, right? So late 1800s, 1900s. Yes. And then just... Things changed and deteriorated after independence, to be honest with you, in Sierra Leone. And so people started going to their own universities in the sure. countries. Oh, okay, cool. Interesting. So speaking of communication, how did you become an ad? Like, where did, where did that come from? So there were a couple of things that happened in my life that kind of directed me in that, that way. So I originally was a, pre, a biology kind of pre-med major, freshman year of college, had a, a really, really good mentor, which I appreciate. My boarding school had this mentor program. She was the number one dermatologist in Jacksonville, Florida. And I was going to school in Jacksonville, Florida for a year. Hated it in Jacksonville. Didn't want to stay there. Didn't want to be in biology. I heard I spoke about it. She was like, okay, if you don't want to go to medical school, here are your options. You can go work in a lab, best case scenario, CDC, or you can teach biology mm -hmm. to high school mm -hmm. kids. Because she was, or you can go on to go to medical school and you can follow that path if that's what you want to do. And I had the opportunity to follow along with her in a, a day of work. And I realized that what you see on TV is very different than what it is in real life, right? And so what I realized, all she did was the process of elimination. Mm -hmm. People tell her her symptoms mm -hmm. and she's like, based on what she remembers from what she learned or a seminar she just took recently, she's gonna try to figure out what your issue is. And then it's not always gonna be to solve it because there's no solutions to these things. There's just medications to stop it from showing, right? So. Right. 
So she would say, you know, eat healthier, don't drink alcohol, don't smoke, whatever. And she was like, okay, here are the topical medications you can do that'll try to eliminate this breakout that you're happening, mm -hmm. right? But we're not actually solving what's happening in your biology that's creating this breakout. And as an 18 year old, I was like, oh, this is not what I want to do. I thought I was going to cure people. I thought I was going to fix problems for people. Sure. And so I realized that plus the fact that I, I don't think I was suited for the medical profession. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I wanted to move into the, the music. Field, the music industry. So I was very big in the, into music. My cousin was an artist at the time. He was working with some managers that were working with some people. And so I thought, okay, when I move back to New York, I'm going to go, I'm going to get a degree in communications or marketing so that I can be the person behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was learning a lot about Rockefeller Records and seeing how Dame Dash was the, the business guy. Jay-Z was the artist. I was thinking about Diddy and Biggie where, you know, Diddy was the, the, the guy that was behind the scenes. Mm -hmm helping produce music, but mostly the executive and Biggie was just the artist. And I realized that um, even with um, Ludacris and his manager, Shaka Zulu, I saw that there was the there was the creative person and there was the business person. And I felt that I could be that counterpart to my cousin. Sure. So I so that's what changed my 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 major in college. After I did a couple of internships, saw an artist get dropped from a label, start talking about needing a job and run out of money. Mm. I realized that there was that side of the music industry. Also, at that time, this is 2002, 2003, 2004, uh, the music industry was moving away from physical album sales, CD sales at stores like Virgin Megastore and all these other stores that were around back then that are not in place today. And what was winning at the time was Kazaa, LimeWire, and all the illegal download sites. And so what I felt was the shift was that the internet and we were just coming out of the dot-com bubble burst, yeah. right? And like internet companies were starting to come, start social media was starting to come back again. Facebook, Facebook came into play while I was in college. Zuckerberg and I are the same age. So I saw social media coming. I saw, I just saw how the internet was changing how music was being produced. And so I was like, if it could change an entire industry that was such a huge industry for so long, I should probably figure out what's going on there once I was disenfranchised by the music industry. And so that was my decision at that time. And then why I decided, instead of just anywhere in the internet, why advertising, is my cousin had Boomerang on DVD. Uh, okay. The movie Boomerang, which was, I think, that's probably my favorite Eddie Murphy movie, right? Okay. So I am, now Boomerang came out 10 years before I watched it. Oh, okay. Right? So I, I was an adult watching Boomerang. And what I loved about it was the lifestyle. I saw the character of Robin Gibbons, but I also saw the character of, of Holly Berry. I saw that as a potential for finding a wife or like girlfriend, <laughs> right? Because you have these, you sure. have these kinds of creatives and people with, yeah. you know, powerful women, you know, in yeah. this industry. And then Marcus's lifestyle, right? The house that he had with everything was black and white. I had apartments just like this, by the way. <laughs> Um, where he had everything in black and white, he had the remote control, fireplace and all that yeah. stuff. The music come on. And this is 1993 or 92, yeah. whenever it was. Yeah. And, you know, he had a remote control fireplace, remote control speakers for mu music and TV and all of that. And I was like, you know, there, there's a path in advertising that I never thought. Sure. We never even cared about. Yeah. And so I think that was also subconsciously on my mind. And I, I went for an interview actually from Craigslist ad. It was a Craigslist ad. And I was told by a, there was a 19 year old kid working there full time. And he was making like $70,000 that year. And when I was interviewing at the music industry, they were offering $26,000 jobs. And I'm like, 26,000 or 70,000? 
And, and then they had mentioned to me that there was a 16 year old who was driving traffic to a website doing email marketing and he was making $60,000 a month. Yep. And I was like, I don't know, I, I couldn't even picture and understand that. And there's his mother's credit card he was using yep. to, buy, to, to buy the advertising space. And he had learned at 16 years old how to drive traffic and generate that kind of income. Mm. And so I was like, I don't know what, I don't really totally understand this, but I, I want to be in that. I want to figure out how to do that. And so that was kind of all of those things coming together is what pushed me there. And, and of course, you know, it was a matter of them deciding to hire me, but they did. And, and then that started my career trajectory at advertising. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I think that people don't recognize that the Internet, our digital lives are driven by advertising. 100 percent. 100%. So you are at the heart of what it is. And it's and it's not complicated, but it's complicated because there's so much intricate, I want to say, operations that yes. are going behind the mind of people to drive. Like that idea that that 16-year-old understood how to, back then, drive traffic without all of the platforms we have now. Right. It's a totally different situation. Right. So now you've become this ad man and, and the industry is evolving, evolving, evolving. Absolutely. And so how do you then find your, your niche, your growth place? Sure. It's a great question. I think the, the first thing that had to happen for me was the financial crisis. When the financial crisis happened, I was a year and a half into my career. You know, it was my second job, making some money. I was, I was generating $90,000 a month through email marketing. But I didn't really totally understand what I was doing. I just found a tactic that worked and I just stuck with it and just scaled it. And what happened was, you know, you have this world where Bear Stearns, well, it was Lehman Brothers. Yeah. Lehman Brothers shuts down. You see, like, I'm, and it's time we were reading a newspaper. We still read the newspaper in 2006 and 2007. So I'm reading the newspaper, and on the front page, every day, there's a new business that's shutting down, a new bank that's being taken over by someone else. And I was doing subprime credit cards and subprime mortgages, and I didn't even know how that was impacting. And so that was obviously the first thing that had to go, because it went from $90,000 a month to, like, $10,000 a month, the revenue for the company. Yeah. And so they laid me off, as they laid off about 90 other people as well. And I thought... Prior to that, I, I thought I figured out the gold mine because the internet ruined the music industry. So how was the internet, how was the internet and the financial industry, how were they compared? How, how did they have anything to do with each other? I didn't correlate the fact that what I was doing on the internet still connected to that world. Yeah. And so the first thing was understanding the world around me more mm -hmm. to understand what made the most sense. And so how I got to where I am now, which is data-driven advertising and more advertising around which means less waste for the advertiser in terms of their spend and ads that are a little bit more relevant to what you do as an individual. Instead of us two being black people between the ages of X, Y, and Z, it's you have products that you use, I have products that I use. Um, you should be seeing ads that are specific to the products that you use and that you're likely to buy. And I should be ad seeing ads specific to me. But how did I get there? I, so after the financial crisis and I was let go, I told myself that I was, that was never going to happen to me again. So I started buying courses on how to build an online empire. And I started buying courses from people who had really big businesses who had ads that I was clicking on. So clearly they knew what they were doing, right? They knew how to get my attention. They knew, first of all, they knew how to get in front of me as a person who was likely to click on it. And then they got me to click on it. So I had to learn from those folks. And so after that, letting go, getting let go from that job, that next year, when I got my tax return, it was about $1,500. No, it was $2,000. 500 went to paying off some of the credit card bills and $1,000 went to a course. Mm -hmm. So I bought this course on how to use social media 
to an advertising to build your online profile, which allows you to become a subject matter expert. And now you can sell courses and do all kinds of different things. So I took all of that, learned from that and started a LinkedIn profile in 2009 when LinkedIn was just a very new company. But that taught me how to see what was going on around me. And then I started learning about the world of venture capital and where companies invest their money. And this is at the time where Airbnb was getting their first round of funding. Uber was about to get their first round of funding. And I could see where money was going. And I saw an internet marketing company acquired by Google for $400 million. Mm. And so when I saw that, I was like, I don't know what they do, but if Google's buying this, then that seems to be something interesting. And so I went to a competitor, but I chose this competitor because the CEO was 31. Mm. I was 26 at the time. So he's only five years older than I was, but he had a raised a million dollars. He had 25 employees. He had figured something out. And so I took that job to learn from him, right? So that was actually, a, it, was, it was, I had taken, I had taken another job because I needed the money, mm-hmm. but I decided to move to this company, even though it was a $20,000 pay cut, because I was working to learn not to earn. Sure. And so I went to go learn from this guy and from learning from him and all the other people who work there, some of those people work at you know, one person works at Uber now, one person works at Google. Many of these people have gone on to do great things in their careers. I learned about this idea of programmatic advertising that targets individuals based on their behavior online. And so I felt like this obviously is a smart place to be in mm-hmm. because it's, it seems like it's ahead of the curve, right? The advertising that we have been doing before is just dropping emails and, and hoping that somebody is gonna click on the email or just putting a banner on the site because we think people are watching or visiting that website, but why not target people based on their actual behaviors and things that they actually purchase? And so it was, it was a combination of seeing all the things that happened in the world around me and saying to myself, okay, whatever I do moving forward is gonna be based on not just my own personal ideas and thoughts, but what I see happening in industries and, and across industry, learn as much as I can and apply that to my my day-to-day job. So that's what led me to doing deep dives. And then I've continued to learn from other people, continue to take courses. I spent over $60,000 in courses in the last 10 years. And these are internet marketing courses. People just sell courses, $1,000, $1,500, $3,000 courses. And that's what kind of led me on my path through all of those courses that I bought. I've learned a lot and it taught me where to focus my attention in it. I love that you said that about the online courses, because I think people sleep Mm-hmm. on their own ability to take themselves out of these larger institutions and get very valuable yeah. insights for their career development. Like you're a proof of that, right? So you, you've made yourself basically self-made. You can work anywhere yeah. because you've done that and you've invested in yourself. So nice. Okay, so I have to ask this question sure. because you're in technology and you're in this space and you know the, the, the latest buzz is ChatGTP yep. and AI and you know Elon Musk trying to roll back the progress of his own freaking mind, that yeah. kind of thing. Yep. So, okay, give us your AI perspective. What are, what do you see? What do you see next? And and even in the context of what you do, because I'm sure there's a lot of AI that's integrated into the work that you're doing, but what is Jenna's AI? Yeah. So just to be clear for everybody listening, AI has been around for a while. Oh, yes. Right? Sure. So it's just artificial intelligence. In fact, whatever shows up in your feed on any social media site has been AI. Yes. In fact, curating what people post, whether it gets flagged or taken down, a lot of that has been artificial intelligence. Yeah. I think what we're seeing now is the evolution of that, mm-hmm. right? So 
it's more smart AI. So before I think AI was, you had to program every element of it. So it was still, there was a human element creating what it did. Mm -hmm. Now the AI is doing things on its own, mm -hmm. still taking from things that are human created. So uh, ChatGPT is a good example, right? Where basically it can, it basically just Googles what you would Google, yeah. but it just does it more intelligently. So like there, and there are other offshoots, perplexity, perplexity is another one that I use. Mm -hmm. So like, Think about the first time you ever Googled something, right? It was probably a really bad search term, keyword search term, because you didn't know what you were doing. It took a while to get trained in order yes, to do that. Exactly. ChatGPT does that better than anybody who can Google anything. I think I'm pretty good at putting in search terms. Mm -hmm. ChatGPT does it to the next level and then it asks subsequent questions and, and all of these things do that. So it just is a little better than what you can do and a little faster than what you can do. So. What does that mean for the future of certain types of work? I think we're seeing now what is going to be 10 years from now, the reduction of certain types of jobs and industries and the elimination of others. Yeah. So I do think that it's going to have a net good in a lot of ways because it's going to make things easier, but it's also going to have some issues and challenges. I think if you want more privacy, then you don't want the, the addition of technology. But if you want more ease of use and you want things to be simpler, then you need the advancement of technology. And so I think it's hard to say what the, if it's going to be a net good or net bad. You know, if you, if you think about them, all the movies about a dystopian future, it's when AI takes over and realizes that humans are a net bad for the planet. So it needs to eliminate all the humans. Right. And so that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Will, will AI at some point say that like we're a virus on the planet and needs to eliminate us because it's taught that it needs to eliminate viruses. They've seen in the, we've seen the movies. It's all in the movies. Yeah. All the nineties, all the early two thousands, any sci-fi movie. And we're now seeing that the early stages of that because it's better than us in a lot of ways. So I think it's going to be great for the next four to five years because it's going to help anybody who knows how to use it, make money selling courses on how to use it, be better at their day-to-day -day job because they don't have to use as much brain power to try to do research. But I think overall, further down the line, it will eliminate a lot of roles. And so I, I do think that there, I think that for us as individuals, it's going to be on us to be able to learn as much as we can about how they work and become experts at how they work and how to use them so that we're not disposable. I myself am doing deep dives into ChatGPT, Perplexity, Video.ai, all these different sites, and I'm using these tools. And I could tell you right now, I go live every Monday. In the last five Mondays, all of the PowerPoint presentations I put together have been through the use of AI. They've told me yeah. what questions to ask that I haven't even thought about. Right. So like if I'm put, I don't even need to put together an outline. I just put one search term in, and then it comes up with other questions that I should be asking, right? And so I would say that it's been great for the near term. The jury's still out on the long term, but I think most people agree that it's probably gonna have a negative impact on society in terms of jobs in the long term. Yes, and the reason why I say that is because we are not yet a fully automated society. There are still people who are manual, and then particularly, you know, when I look at the stats on global digital adoption, sure. where I think that a lot of stats lie, sure, and they also just say, just because you're on your digital, we're 50% or less right. for actual real adopters. Right. So for now us to think and start to move into these ways, it's the haves and have nots gap sure. is where this, this jobs issues are coming from and where it's potentially, you know, frightening, you know, and either it will bring people, you know, a lot of what I'm seeing is a lot of ways to be creative. Right. So wonderful for creatives, you know, like I'm 
honestly going to be using it because as much as I love the craft of animation, it's doing it for me. Absolutely. So I can be this different storyteller much more quickly and reach audiences much more quickly, which is lovely, you know, and the idea of creating characters that speak other and, and also the translations. It's just a, a game changer for a creative space. So for certain sectors, it's wonderful. But then there's also those that, so like you said, so many people who are losing their jobs. So I don't know. I think you're right. Ultimately, I think it's going to be slower, but it, it could accelerate this big gap. And, you know, we already have people who, and I don't want to be tangenty, but I just wanted to, sure. something I heard earlier today with, you know, Russia now taking over the UN Security Council. Mm-hmm. And their goal being to discuss or start conversation about the global world order. Right. Why are we using those, those, that language? What is it? Right. What, what does that mean? Like, what is that? So that to me is already, a, you know, obviously I'm biased because they're in a war and I feel like they're warmongers. But sure. when you're looking for a global world, world order, the words, and maybe they didn't use that word in, in Russian, right. but I have a feeling that it is something equivalent. And it's really not about world order. It's about world progress like how are we as humans you know so i say out to say that there are many that don't care right if others come along or not because there's an order that is their hierarchy of mind that is there so speaking of mindsets let me ask you my mindset hack so what is your favorite mindset hack one that you practice one that you know of or one that you can imagine affirmations i think thoughts are things Mm -hmm. right and you know in in religion it's prayer I think it's very similar, right? But I think affirmations are really good mindset had because your brain cannot distinguish between what is true and what is not. Mm-hmm. And if you keep telling yourself that you are this thing, it works. And I will tell you that once I was let go from that that role and my my net worth was negative forty thousand dollars. I remember this very, very well. Oh, wow. <laughs> my, my net worth was negative forty K. I refused to think that I was poor or that I was in poverty, yeah. right? And I, in my mindset hack was like, money comes easily and frequently. Now it took years for that, to, it took two years for that to happen. Sure. But I said it every day to myself. I said, I am the American dream. Money comes easily and frequently. Today I'll be the best me that I can be. I'm confident, I am king, right? And I will say this to myself every single day. Yeah. And I do think that that really does help change the way you see yourself. <laughs> if you really do work on your self-talk, I think it changes the way you see yourself. Because like I said, your brain, I read this one somewhere that you, you only experience one twelfth of your consciousness, right? So if you're only experiencing one twelfth, the, the words that you're saying and the things that you're saying are that other 11 twelfths, yeah. right? And it's finding things because you, you barely see what's happening, right? When you're looking, yeah. you're not really paying attention to these things, but your brain is, is pointing out what's important to you because you told your brain it's important. Yes. And so I think that that's the biggest mindset hat is affirmation because I do think thoughts are things. Yes, I would agree. That's a good one. Very good. And the way you've, you've articulated it makes it even more like do this, folks. It really makes a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about the Joe that's not the, the businessman. Sure. The Joe that might read, watch or listen to certain things. Sure. So I like to ask this question. Aside from your work and when you're not, you know, in the zone, what are some of the things you do or and what are some of your favorite reads, watches? Are you a reader, are you a watcher, are you a listener? And what are some of your favorite reads, watches or listen? I'm a listener and a watcher. Okay. I've always had a challenge with reading comprehension. Mm-hmm. I realize that it's genetic. Okay. There's only the one generation before me was the first generation to ever sit in the classroom mm-hmm. and to read text. Mm-hmm. 
And so my family has always been really big on, like we have a horrible history, especially on my dad's side yeah. of the family, right? And we've always told stories, through, which makes sense. I'm an orator, I speak a lot. I'm, I'm much better at presenting than I am at writing yeah. an essay, right? Yeah. Which makes sense, right? Genetics maybe plays a part of that. But I've always had a hard time with reading comprehension. Sure. So I like to listen to books, mm -hmm. very big on books on history. Mm -hmm. uh, history and in terms of current commentary and news, very big on like political news and what's happening around the world. So I do watch some YouTube videos for folks that I'm a fan of. And then sports, right? I'm, I'm a big fan of sports. And why I'm a fan of sports, it might be a little bit different for other people. It's not just entertainment because I think sports really is kind of a metaphor for life, right? Mm -hmm. When you get knocked down, you get back up. Yeah. You deal with adversity. How do you deal with things under pressure, right? How are you, you know, every sport has all-stars. So even though these people are professionals and they're a small percentage of a small percentage of people who can even get to this professional level, mm -hmm. how do you get to that next level, right? All-star, and then beyond all-star, how are you multiple time all-stars so then eventually you're in the hall of fame, Sure. right? And so I think sports are really important because subconsciously it teaches you that. And then once you know that, now when you're watching it, your brain is also picking that up too. Mm -hmm. So for me, I try to, you know, I think it's what's important is, somebody used to say garbage in, garbage out, and I think that's also an engineering term too. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever you put in your ears comes out your mouth or at least stays in your brain. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to follow people who are doing what I'd like to do yeah. and who are living how I'd like to live sure. and who have knowledge that I don't have. And so if anybody who has it in those realms of history, politics, sports, mm -hmm. I spend my time consuming that kind of content. So one of my books that I always tell people to read is Class of Civilizations. Um, it talks about all the different civilizations in world history. It's really good. It tells you a little bit about human history. It talks about the different African civilizations, the Greeks, the, you know, obviously the West, what the current West civilization looks like. So that's really good. I like Sapiens. Sapiens is another book that was really good. I really love that book. It's to talking about human history, I think was great. And then I also like to read books about like crimes and how crimes were committed, because I think there are a lot of things that you can learn from people, even though they're doing illicit activities, they had to be really creative yes. with how they built those businesses. Yeah. And so, and, I, and I'll have to remember the name of the book because I don't remember what it was, but it was about the, the story of Silk Road. Mm. Silk Road was almost as big as Amazon, but it was the Amazon of the dark web, mm. right? So, and Bitcoin survived because of Silk Road. That was the only mm. currency that they accepted. Obviously, because everybody was buying illicit things, they couldn't buy it with cash sure. or with any monetary transfers that are normal monetary transfers. So you had to use Bitcoin or cryptocurrency at the time. And so for me, I thought that the story was really interesting because he had to be really, really creative of how he could build this business. And I learned a story about Fred Smith, the guy who started FedEx. FedEx was really interesting because he decided to bring airplanes to mail, mail dis distribution, right? Because at the time it was done through like trains yeah. and trucks. And so he actually uh, got a C in a class in business school because they're like, who's going to put these two things together? But he thought to bring those two things together. So for me, try to be as well-rounded as possible allows me to approach something with a different mindset than someone else. That diversity of thought is super important. So for me, as much as I can learn from all these different areas, I can apply that to my life. And that allows me to approach something with a much different perspective than other people who have only done deep dives into the industry that we're in. Sure, sure. I like that. Those are good tips. So... Class of Civilization, Sapiens, we're going to find out and it'll be the show notes, folks. Show notes are always rich. Joe, thank you. This has been such a great, we could go on and on. Well, I know I'm conscious of everyone's time. 
So thank you so much for joining me. This is such a nice conversation. I, you know, I'm moving into, and I keep saying this, I, I did a test run, folks, of my craft salon culminating Women's History Month. So I just took a compilation of conversations about that from women. But I really do intend to have live salons, guys, with people who are talking about information issues, interests that we talk about on the podcast. So I'd love to invite you back once once that gets started. And so before we go, do you have any final thoughts for our audience? Yeah, so I would I would say, number one, as I've talked about, I think the theme of this discussion has been paying attention to the world around you, mm-hmm. right? And we living here on the continent have seen how much other people are focused on the continent of Africa mm-hmm. and are looking to extract the resources for personal gain. Yeah. And I think we need more of us who care about us who can do good and do well at the same time. So you can do good for the people of the countries that we are we are working in and we are living in. We can also do well financially. Yeah. So I think that all, if, if you're a person who wants to be rich and wants to make a lot of money, that's great. But the why is gonna help you actually get there. Why do you wanna make money? And so I think social enterprise and focusing on businesses on the continent, I think would be great for you personally and it also be fulfilling as well. So I would definitely recommend those people who are listening, who want to understand a little bit more about what, you know, why people would move here, start thinking about investing on the continent of Africa. You can have outsized returns if you're willing to deal with some of the challenges and opportunities that'll come along. Sure, sure, sure. And I have to say, folks, we haven't even done Joe all of his justice because he also has a YouTube channel. So tell us where we can find you. Tell us about Authentic African. Okay, yes. So I can be found. So on Instagram, it's authentic underscore African. On TikTok, it's authentic underscore underscore African. And on YouTube, it's just authentic African. And so the the channel and the platform is really about telling the stories of people who have moved to the continent, entrepreneurs on the continent, and the stories of people who are of the continent, right? So that's really the idea. It follows my journey moving here. And then also as I interview entrepreneurs as well. Uh, and so it's it's really been about helping people make a decision, mm-hmm. right? And the, whatever that decision might be, the visit, to move, to invest, that's the goal of the platform. And then also with the Instagram page, which has been around a little bit longer than my plan to ever even move to Africa, that's really been about bridging the diaspora and Africa. So if you follow Authentic African, Authentic underscore African on Instagram, what you'll see is a little bit of news coming from the States mm-hmm. or in the UK and how things are, are impacting people of color, specifically uh, Africans in the diaspora. And then you also get a lot of news about what's happening on the continent as well. And then there's also some levity and entertainment as well. You know, spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, right? So I do try to have some entertainment as well. So you get a little bit of everything, but you'll learn a lot following the page. And that's been my goal, right? It's to try to bridge the two because I happen to be a person who looks African-American, but I actually am African-American. Like both my parents are African. And so I had that experience of having African parents and then black American friends. And so I'm bridging the gap as an individual. And so I'm trying to do that with my content. Nice, 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 nice. So that'll be the show notes. And we'll be looking for Joe there and everywhere. (laughs) Back here again too. So folks, this has been another episode of the podcast. I thank you so much for joining me. You can catch us with episodes Tuesdays at glocalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon. You know the drill folks. Like, share, subscribe, leave us a note. And until next time, bye for now.